It's October, my favorite time of the year, and for this episode, I wanted to chat about one of my favorite ways to celebrate Halloween, and that is with horror stories, and more specifically, with haunted house stories. Now, women have been writing horror since the beginning. They've terrified us with vampires, monsters, dystopian nightmares, ghosts, and haunted houses. And it's haunted houses that I want to talk about today. Because haunted house stories are uniquely primed to express the horror that directly relates to women's lives. Now, I know that many of you may not really be into horror, but hear me out. Horror is more than just jump scares. Horror lets us explore certain ideas in a way that no other medium does. And there are some incredibly exciting, entertaining, and thought-provoking horror stories out there that are not only perfect ways to celebrate this spooky season, but a profound way to reflect on the world around us and on ourselves. So buckle up for this horror fest, and you'll hopefully come out the other side with a new way of looking at haunted house stories. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. Before we get our spooky on and jump into specific haunted house stories, I think that the first question we need to ask is, why would any human being willingly put themselves through a terrifying experience? Well, there are several really good answers for this, and the first is actually rooted in evolutionary biology. According to researcher Matthias Klassen, about 54% of people willingly seek out horror media, like horror movies, horror video games, and horror books. Now, that's a really large number of people intentionally looking to get scared. And according to Klassen, the reason for this is because horror taps into what's called the evolved fear system. Now, the evolved fear system is a set of biological defense mechanisms that every human has. Now, as I'm sure you can understand, our human ancestors lived in a world that was really dangerous. They lived under a constant threat of predators, whether that was animals or other humans that were just waiting to pounce on them. And so having a healthy sense of fear and vigilance actually kept them alert and alive. Now, just because nowadays humans have less call to be on the lookout for predators doesn't mean we don't still have this evolved sense of vigilance. And this is where horror media, those movies, books, and video games come in. Horror media strokes our evolutionary need to tap into our fear system. And so horror media gives us that chance to vicariously live out dangerous and threatening scenarios where we can both flex our fear muscles and observe what to do and what not to do in the presence of a threat, and then activate that evolutionary fear response that keeps us alert to any potential dangers in our own real lives. And this impulse transcends language, culture, gender, and age. Now, beyond our evolutionary need to feel afraid, horror provides another indispensable service, and that's therapy. As Stephen King says, horror is not only a distorted lens through which we can explore the most uncomfortable truths and ideas, but it's also a mirror. Characters in modern horror stories tend to find that the monster, whether it be a werewolf or a ghost or a haunted house, shows them something about themselves, and it's usually something they don't like. It's like a house of mirrors that reflects back a character's own personal hell. Now, in the case of haunted house stories, the house itself is the monster that the character is trapped by, both physically and often financially. And so they are incapable of escaping the horror. 
Locking the front door that normally protects them from whatever is outside actually has a perverse opposite effect by locking them inside with the danger. They have to face those dangers, and the question becomes whether facing that horror will eventually free them of their demons, or whether the demons will end up figuratively or literally swallowing them up. So to zoom out a bit on this, haunted houses get us to look at who we would be if the central aspect of our lives, our home life, went completely sideways on us. And to take that line of thought a bit further, haunted houses reflect a uniquely feminine type of horror. Because homes, whether by choice or social assignment, tend to be the female domain. Homes are the venue where historically women have funneled their business acumen, their artistic abilities, their physical strength, scientific knowledge, and networking skills. The home is the one surefire place that women have had over the centuries where they can showcase their talents and apply their abilities. And while home is where the heart is, the home is also a limited space. The female relationship to the home is fraught with conflict. The home is both her domain and her prison. It's her security and her burden. So among other things, the haunting of a home can reflect that fraught relationship, the dual identity of women as homemakers and homes as oppressive and horrifying. So since women tend to be synonymous with homes, when the home is haunted, there's a natural connection to be made between the haunting and the horror that confinement to domestic life can represent for some women. Now, I want to preface all this by clarifying that I believe that there is no correct answer, whether a woman works in the home, works outside of the home, or does both. All women work. And whether they work inside the home only or outside of it, the ladies of this planet tend to shoulder the bulk of the societal burdens that keep this world going. And the generally unequal distribution of unpaid labor they perform on a daily basis, running their homes, caring for children, and caring for elderly and ailing family members, makes any other pursuits, whether professional, educational, or creative, much more challenging. So allow me to expand on this. Did you know that according to UN statistics, that by the end of 2020, 321 million women, that's almost twice the number of men, had left the workforce in part to accommodate for increased childcare and domestic responsibilities. That simply by getting married, the average woman will accrue seven extra hours of housework per week. And that according to a McKinsey Global Institute study, that 75% of unpaid care work around the globe is done by women. Now, to me, that's terrifying. And it just so happens that there are plenty of haunted house stories that speak to this type of horror. So in honor of this current spooky season, I want to talk about, and by extension recommend, a few haunted house stories. Now, these stories tackle universal issues, but they're written by women, and they touch on themes that speak to that particular brand of horror that can be found in the day-to-day -day lives of the female portion of the planet. Now, there are countless haunted house stories written by women that are amazing, entertaining, terrifying, and thought-provoking, but the stories I'll be focusing on today are all very different. They are written by women of diverse backgrounds, their characters are living very different lives in different times and in different places. But the common thread is that the place where these characters should feel most safe is the place that brings them the most discomfort, stress, and terror. Now, issues affecting women are often treated like they're deviations from the norm, as opposed to problems that affect a massive percentage of the world population. The lives of women affect us all, and the horrors of women affect us all. 
So there are three stories I'm going to talk about, and with each book, I'm going to dive into the story a bit, but don't worry, there won't be spoilers. I'll just be giving enough information to help you understand what the story's about, to talk about the issues it tackles, and then hopefully to pique your interest so that you may want to read it. And then to talk about how each story exemplifies a uniquely feminine brand of horror. So to start off with, let's talk a little bit about financial horror. First up is The Graveyard Apartment by Mariko Koike. There isn't a whole lot of information out there about Koike, but she is known as one of the most popular writers in Japan today. And she's most known for her detective fiction and horror writing. And The Graveyard Apartment is one fantastic piece of horror. But I'm going to be honest here. The story begins in a way that makes any horror fan want to throw the book across the room. Misao and Tepe purchase a luxury apartment at a steal of a price, but that's because it's next to a graveyard. Cut to me throwing the book across the room, then picking it up immediately to start reading again. Now, the couple, of course, make the decision for financial reasons, because for the same price they would pay for a much smaller and older apartment in a less creepy location, they get a beautiful, new, high-rise apartment with a balcony, two bedrooms, and spacious living and dining room. And on top of that, they have extra space for Misao to do her freelance work from home since she left her day job to care for their daughter, Tamao. Given that Misao has given up her full-time income and that they're raising a small child, finances are more important than ever. And so they buy the beautiful apartment in the creepy graveyard that just happens to be right across the way from a crematorium. You know, just a little slice of real estate heaven. So this place is clearly spooky central, but as the family settle into their life in the new apartment, the horror of both their past and the place they now live in comes together. Horror tends to play off the shames, traumas, and fears of a character's past, and the horror of this graveyard apartment is no different. It all starts with an unexplained accident involving Tamau in the basement. So each individual apartment is allotted a coveted basement storage space. But the use of the basement seems to come with some unwanted perks. Not to mention an elevator that repeatedly brings residents to that basement, even though they press the button for a different floor entirely. Now, let's just say that enough chaos ensues that at some point, Misao and Tepe want to leave their creepy new apartment. Often, families who want to run away from their haunted houses have some mixed feelings about leaving the place because they have fond memories there or a family history. But in the case of Misao and Tepe, they haven't spent enough time in their apartment to really bond with it before creepy things start happening, and therefore there is no emotional attachment. But when crap really hits the fan and Misao and Tepe want to leave their haunted building, money is the first and biggest obstacle in their way. They stick things out far longer than any sane person would, specifically because of their bank account balance. And this is where some classic female domestic horror comes in. Money. Or the lack of it, really. When Misao and Tepe had their daughter, Misao gave up her full-time work as an illustrator to pick up freelance projects from home. This transition is one that countless women have made after having a child. It's commonplace. But why does it count as horror? Well, for a few reasons. But first and foremost, it's that pesky gender pay gap, which I personally find very scary. On the whole, women tend to earn less money than their male partners, and so when it comes time to choose which income will be sacrificed to the pay-cut gods, it often makes more financial sense for the woman to give up her job since her male partner will statistically have a higher income. 
Then, of course, the vicious cycle continues because by stepping back during potentially prime earning years, the woman is set back on her future earning potential. So even if she returns to full-time work later on down the line, she is still at a financial disadvantage. So when we look at the financial horror that Misao and Tepe are experiencing, I think, first of all, that most of us can relate to financial stress. This is a universal issue, but there is an important gender distinction here, and that is that poverty disproportionately affects women. Now, allow me to expand on that. In many places in the world, women simply have less access to education and professional opportunities, whether that be because of social, cultural, or religious customs, or simply a lack of proximity to those opportunities. Then there's the gender pay gap that essentially exists everywhere, but it's just that in some places that gap is significantly larger than others. And then there's the impact that motherhood and unpaid domestic labor have on a woman's earning potential. This event in many women's lives is the fulcrum that determines their professional trajectory for decades. So I'm going to take this opportunity to introduce a piece of literature that I think every human being should read, and that is Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Criado Perez. Now, the idea of gender inequality isn't a new concept for anyone, but what is groundbreaking about this book is its approach to painting the picture of that inequity, which is that the bulk of the data used to determine urban planning, to make medical diagnoses and analyze medical drug trials, and to determine standard function and sizing of protective equipment, to name a few things, is calibrated to make male bodies the default. This means that female lifestyles and bodies aren't taken into account when some of the most life-altering structures in society are put into place. And this includes default work schedules and policies. Workplaces are generally designed for what is called an unencumbered worker. This means that the average workplace is meant for someone who is fully available to work at least eight hours per day without interruption or the need to care for family responsibilities during those hours. This, of course, is a very tall order for anyone who has children or who is caring for an elderly or ailing family member. So the problem is, is that women don't tend to be unencumbered. In fact, according to statistics listed in Invisible Women, in the UK, 42% of women work part-time, as opposed to 11% of men. And women make up 75% of part-time workers. And on top of that, part-time work is paid less per hour than full-time work. This is generally because high-level positions don't tend to be part-time. In the United States, the pay gap between mothers and married fathers is three times higher than the pay gap between men and women without children. But for many, there really isn't another realistic option than part-time work or no work at all when it comes to childcare. So instead of contending with work schedules and responsibilities that are impossible to balance with unpaid care responsibilities, many women have no choice other than to go part-time or to leave the workforce altogether. And this I also find terrifying. And in the graveyard apartment, Misao's decreased income contributes to one of the main stresses of this haunted house story. They bought this particular apartment, even with the reservations they had about it being located in the middle of a freaking cemetery, for financial reasons. And when the only thing they want in the world is to leave it, they're stuck. They're locked into a mortgage that they can't possibly sell, and they can't afford two housing payments. They are completely stuck, locked in with a horror that they can't escape, physically, psychologically, or financially. And so an already malevolent monster that seeps into every facet of these people's lives becomes all the more terrifying because it can't possibly be escaped. 
Poverty affects billions of women the world over, but the lack of financial and structural support for women and mothers compounds this terrible issue for a huge portion of the world's population. And so, if you're looking for a great story to sink your teeth into that's dripping with creepy atmosphere, features an elevator run amok, and takes you down a path of financial horror, read The Graveyard Apartment. And now, the next spine-tingling topic is social horror. Let's talk about The House Next Door by Anne Rivers Siddons. Siddons was a popular novelist and was known for her fiction set in and about the South, but because she simply wanted to deviate from her norm and because she wondered if she actually could write a ghost story, she wrote a haunted house story. And for this, horror fans can be grateful. The House Next Door is a unique kind of haunted house story because our main characters don't actually live in the haunted house. They live next to it. But nevertheless, they're profoundly impacted by it. So Colquitt and Walter Kennedy live in an upscale neighborhood in suburban Atlanta, where their neighborhood community creates a framework to their life. All the neighbors know each other, the teenagers down the street mow Colquitt's lawn, there are annual Christmas and New Year's Eve parties for the street, and dinner invitations are exchanged on a regular basis. This is a high-contact neighborhood, and this sense of community and closeness is what adds another level of horror to the story. But first, let me talk about the haunted house next door. Colquitt and Walter have lived in their home for years and love the fact that there is an empty lot on one side of their house that creates a buffer between them and the next house. The lot is heavily wooded and covered with plants, so when news gets around that the lot has been sold to a young couple who are planning to build an ultra-modern house in their traditional southern neighborhood, eyebrows are raised. But once Colquitt meets the architect, a young, inexperienced man named Kim Doherty, and then sees the plans for the home-to-be, she's stunned. It's beautiful, and as the construction progresses, the home seems to fit the lot, the remaining trees and the shrubberies perfectly. It just belongs there. But then, as of course has to happen in a horror story, things go sideways. Colquitt and Walter watch from the sidelines as horrible things begin to happen to the owners of the home. And then they watch in horror again as terrible things happen to a succession of new owners. And at some point, they can no longer deny that there's something malevolent about that house. And here is where the extra layer of feminine horror comes in. Speaking out about the evil house on the street would impact everyone in the neighborhood. The neighbors would be associated with a supernatural scandal that nobody wants to believe in, and on top of that, there is a real possibility that property values on the entire street could decrease, and nobody wants that. So when Colquitt and Walter decide to speak publicly about the house next door, they risk inflicting real social and financial damage on their neighbors and friends. Now, the interesting thing here is that when everything is said and done, Colquitt seems to receive the brunt of the vitriol from the neighbors. That's not to say that Walter doesn't get his share of the punches, but Colquitt's relationships suffer the fastest and the worst. Now, this discrepancy could come down to the gender likability bias. So when women act in a way that makes them appear to be inattentive to the needs of others, they're statistically penalized more than when men act in the same way. For example, a 2010 study published in Sage Journals found that when male politicians were perceived as cold, it didn't impact them negatively. However, when female politicians were seen as less caring, it resulted in a form of moral outrage in both male and female study participants. The cold female politicians were viewed with contempt, anger, and or disgust. So when Colquitt acts in a way that is perceived as inconsiderate of others, she receives the harder blowback. 
Among so many other interesting ideas and themes, The House Next Door illustrates this social horror in a masterful way. Anne River Siddons has a refined sense of how to stretch and breach social boundaries to create horror that doesn't feel that far from reality. And when those social boundaries are pulled tight enough, a tight-knit, homogenous, affluent community descends into chaos. Now that we've discussed financial and social horror, let's jump into a fresh new horror of day-to-day life. Our final haunted house story is The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. This is one of the most famous modern haunted house stories out there. It represents one of the crowning glories of daily female horror, and that is unpaid labor. In the biography called A Rather Haunted Life, Ruth Franklin said of Shirley Jackson that as her career progressed and her personal life became more troubled, her work began to investigate more deeply the kinds of psychic damage to which women are especially prone. It can be no accident that in many of these works, a house, a woman's domain, functions as a kind of protagonist, with traditional homemaking occupations such as cooking or gardening playing a crucial role in the narrative. But before we get much further down this path, let's talk about the story of the haunting of Hill House. Eleanor's mother has recently passed away when she receives an invitation from Dr. Montague, an anthropologist who studies psychic phenomena. Dr. Montague has invited Eleanor and many others who have reportedly had some kind of psychic experience to a mansion with a spooky reputation. But out of all of those who Montague invited, only Eleanor and a woman named Theo accept. And as we get to know Eleanor, we find that she's a 32-year-old woman who has never led an independent life. Instead, she's been the caretaker of an ailing mother for years, and all of her adult years and energy have been dedicated to the unpaid care work that mainly falls on the shoulders of women around the world. And so we return to this statistic. According to Caroline Criado Perez in her glorious book, Invisible Women, 75% of unpaid care work around the globe is done by women. On average, women spend between three and six hours a day doing this unpaid care work, compared to the 32 minutes to two hours that men perform each day. Unpaid care work is performed mostly by women for a host of reasons. Much of it comes down to simple social and cultural expectations, but there's more to it than just that. As we discussed through the story of the graveyard apartment, if a parent is going to leave the workforce or refrain from entering altogether, it does make the most sense for the non-working parent to be the one who would earn less money. And because of our friend, the gender pay gap, that is most often the female partner in a male-female relationship. Now, I do want to acknowledge that on an individual level, so many men are taking on more responsibilities in the home, but it is more likely that a male would take on extra childcare duties, which arguably are the more fulfilling and fun option rather than taking care of housework and domestic duties. But when we zoom out on a global perspective, this inequity on who performs the unpaid labor has not gotten much better. Now, jumping back to Eleanor's story, she has spent her life doing unpaid care work, the invisible work that maintains family structures and keeps the species alive. And as a result, she hasn't experienced much outside of the domestic sphere. And her situation pretty aptly describes the unpaid care burden of millions of women across the globe. In Eleanor's case, she's caring for her ailing mother, and in many other women's cases, it's in caring for their own children that they shoulder a societal burden that often inhibits their educational and professional growth, and often by extension, their financial stability. The United States is one of eight countries in the world without national paid maternity leave. Women are forced to choose between caring for their infant and caring for themselves as they heal from childbirth and keeping their jobs. 
women who have children are carrying a societal burden that we all benefit from, and they're doing it for free. But at what mental, physical, and emotional cost? If you ask me, this is horror. Now, as Eleanor's time at Hill House progresses, we see that, ostensibly as a coping mechanism for a taxing life caring for her mother, she has a highly developed imaginary world. She often seems disconnected from what's going on around her, but when she arrives at Hill House and dials into whatever is going on there, it seems to take a particular hold on her. The horror of Eleanor's life is that it mirrors the unequal distribution of the backbreaking care labor that is the backbone of our society. Too often this unpaid labor that is essential to keeping all of our lives going is silently and presumptuously passed on to women. So as women struggle to maintain lesser paid work, they are also carrying the burden of the world's unpaid labor of child rearing, elderly and sick care, and domestic duties. But just because women have done this for centuries doesn't make it any less terrifying. Now, as the story at Hill House progresses, a reader could question Eleanor's sanity, and really, that's the magic of Shirley Jackson's writing. But what I think this aspect of the story speaks to is the toll that these burdens take on women's mental health. Apart from being an inherently entertaining and exciting escape, haunted house stories tell us more about our society and ourselves than we might realize. Horror in general, but especially haunted house stories, have been vehicles to express the horror of everyday female life in a world that is designed for men. As time goes on, we see the discrepancies between male and female quality of life lessen in many places, but these horrors still persist. And in writing about them in the context of haunted house stories, authors create a space to talk about these issues that is just reflective enough of real life that we can recognize the horrors that the characters are living through in our own daily lives. In Ruth Franklin's biography of Shirley Jackson, she observed that Jackson's work had been chronically underestimated because it was focused on women's lives. But the fact of the matter is that the lives of women affect us all, and the horrors of women affect us all. And just because we were all born into a world where these terrors are ever-present doesn't mean it has to stay that way. So if we remember that evolutionary impulse that humans have to seek out terror, when financial, social, and unpaid labor horrors are put in the context of haunted house stories, they can activate our fear response to make us more alert to and understanding of their danger to women. And the more alert we are to potential predators, the better chance we have of defeating them. And now, it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. Besides the wildly creepy and entertaining The Graveyard Apartment, The House Next Door, and The Haunting of Hill House, there are several other books that I would highly recommend if you're interested in this topic. First and foremost, Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. This book is like taking the red pill in the Matrix. Women inherently sense that they're living in a world that wasn't designed for them, but when you read Invisible Women, suddenly the haze clears and the true structure of the world you've been walking around in comes into focus. The next book is called Monster, She Wrote by Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson. I've wanted to have a broad view of the impact that female writers have had on the horror genre, and when I came across Monster, She Wrote, suddenly the span of female contributions to the field was laid out before me. Kroger and Anderson have written a timeline of female horror, and the book is filled to the brim with book recommendations, so get ready to walk away with a stack of books you want to read. 
And lastly, if you're interested in delving more into the evolutionary compulsion that we have to seek out horror, Matthias Claussen, who is the researcher that I referenced earlier on in the episode, published a book in 2017 called Why Horror Seduces. This book draws on cutting-edge research to show how horror and human nature are intertwined. Thanks so much for listening. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast and connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Woman in Time. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated. <laughs>